Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Mark J. Victor. Mark is an attorney in the US where he's a certified criminal law specialist and president of the Attorneys for Freedom Law Firm. He's also an activist and founder of the Live and Let Live Global Peace Movement. So hello, Mark, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Don. Such a pleasure and an honor to be on your podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm in Montreal today. I travel around a little bit. Do you want to say where you are and what it's like there? Yeah, I'm uh, suffering here in Honolulu. It's going to be about 81 degrees and sunny today, just like yesterday and just like tomorrow. Uh, So I have a law firm in both Arizona and in Hawaii. So I have the Uh arduous task of having to go back and forth uh, to Hawaii every month and uh, suffer the torture of uh, poor, perfect weather and beautiful beaches. It's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. I was a bit envious because we've, I don't know if you've seen in the news, we've got, still got the wildfires in Canada. I was kind of hoping that would be over, but it's all smoky outside today uh, because of all the smoke from the wildfires. So we, we apparently, yesterday, we had the worst air pollution in the world in Montreal. Well, so come, come visit us in Honolulu. Yeah. We have- 3,000 miles of nothing but ocean on, in every direction. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll jump straight on the plane after the call. <laughs> uh, so let's dive right in. And I know the stuff that you want to talk about, I think also for our audience, their main interest would be in Greek philosophy and classics and stuff like that. So I thought we could tie that in with your interest in politics and ethics and so on. But let's begin just by saying, I know you've mentioned Stoic philosophy to me before as something that you're interested in. How did you get interested in Stoicism? Yeah, to say I'm interested in Stoic philosophy probably grossly understates the case. All my family and friends would say, Mark is a junkie. He spends all of his uh, free time. I mean, I Uh love Stoicism. I think it's a wonderful philosophy. I discovered it. Uh, because I was, I'm a fan of Sam Harris, and I was listening uh-huh. to his podcast. And uh, Bill Irvin came on, and I, yeah. I was fascinated with the discussion. And so I got uh, Bill's book, um, uh, the uh, Guide to the Good Life, which is yeah. probably uh, the book I recommend more than any other book to get started on the philosophy. And uh, Bill and I have become friends. I reached out to him; he was gracious to have a conversation, and I wanted to talk to him also about live and let live. And uh, so I discovered the Stoic philosophy that way. Which, uh, you know, if you are a meditator, and um, Mm -hmm. I use Sam Harris's Waking Up app, and so I meditate in what I would call the Buddhist-style tradition, there are some inconsistencies, of course, some big inconsistencies between Stoicism and uh, Buddhist meditation, but there's also an awful lot of overlap. Uh, And as a practical matter, I think Stoicism is more helpful for somebody Mm -hmm. to live a good, productive life. So I, um, you know, I talk to my friends and family really about both, but I usually lead with stoicism because it's um, in some ways it's the easiest to get your brain uh-huh. around. I mean, I've never encountered someone when I said, look, there are, there are some things you control and some things you don't, but I haven't been met with a, of course, that's, yes, this is right. And so no, uh, it's like, that's rubbish. Right. That's right. Like, <laughs> yeah. So they get that and they instantly yeah. understand that it's yeah, they just... on things you control makes more sense than focusing uh-huh. on things you have no control over. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, Bill Irvine's book is probably, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's probably the first modern bestseller on stoicism before 
before this is before Ryan Holiday's books uh, were published. Even uh, Bill had a bestseller about Stoic philosophy that introduced many many people to the subject. Yeah, it makes sense why he does a very nice job of giving an overview and some history and then some very useful techniques. But my concern with the book and a lot of the modern books is some they're so good that um, you almost feel like you don't have to go back to some of the uh-huh. original writings. And I think it's really great uh, to listen to, uh, you know, or, or read Seneca's letters uh, to yeah. Lucilius and, and, of course, Marcus Aurelius and uh, Epictetus, if you're up for it. I, I love Epictetus, but, you know, Epictetus is the real deal, the, the yeah. underlying philosophy. And also, you know, I should say as well, I think some people sometimes get turned off from Stoicism because they get into more of the metaphysics portion or the mm-hmm. epistemology. And, and, you know, it doesn't jive perfectly. Some of the terminology is different. And so mm-hmm. I try to tell people, look, focus on the ethics. I think it's very easy to reconcile uh, the Stoic metaphysics with whatever your personal, whether you're religious or not religious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so look, get, get your brain around the ethics first. Improve your life. It will improve your life more than anything else. And then let's talk about the metaphysics, what they got right, what they got. Look, they were 2,000 years ago. We've learned some things since then, uh, but very brilliant thinkers at that time. So I I just encourage people to go do some of the original uh, writings and and understand that people 2,000 years ago are thinking through the same problems we've got today. It's really amazing. It is amazing. And you're right. Like, Of course, this was a long time ago. Like Many, many things have moved on. Logic has moved on. Um, physics has moved on, but it's remarkable. Um, my field psychotherapy, which we'll talk about a bit maybe, but uh, the the a good way of putting it is that the Stoics, in my mind, were way ahead of Sigmund Freud, for instance, in terms of their understanding of many of the principles of modern psychotherapy. Certainly, what they say has far more in common. Uh, with what we do in modern cognitive behavioral therapy than than it does with Freud and Jung and those early 20th century uh, psychotherapists. So they seem very advanced in their psychological understanding in that regard. Shockingly so, I would say. Yeah. Shockingly so. Because uh, you know, I, I in my field, I have opportunities to use many psychologists and psychiatrists. And so uh, I, I'm on the lookout. Now, if you if you are not at least in the school of cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm not going to even think about referring my clients here. Uh, we have one of our in the Live and That Live movement, uh, Michael Edelstein, who's also a psychologist. He uses REBT, Rational mm-hmm. Emotive Behavioral Therapy, I think is, is the uh, acronym. And um, boy, he, he makes a lot of sense. He, he talks about, look, it's, you can't change the thing in the past, but you can change your thinking about the thing. Man, if you can get your head around that, you can really deal with what you can control and, and improve your life. Live for right now. Be happy. You were here for a short time. It makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And so what what's your feeling about why Stoicism has gone through this renaissance and popularity? Because it's got a kind of perennial appeal to it, and it's gone to to some extent, it's gone through cycles of popularity. It comes comes in waves, um, but it's fair to say that over recent decades, it's seen a huge explosion. And actually, one way of measuring that, if we we can be objective about it in terms of looking at book sales, and 
you know, Ryan Holiday's books, which are the ones that sell the most, have sold millions and millions of copies. Books on Aristotle, books on Plato, books on Epicurus, and other branches of ancient philosophy do not sell uh, anywhere near that many copies. So there is a, a disproportionate interest in, at the moment in Stoicism for some reason. And you've kind of touched on that a little bit, but I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more about it. Why is Stoicism grabbing people particularly at the moment? Well, I think in the uh, sort of macro sense, um, obviously Stoicism was very popular, maybe predominant uh, at the time 2,000 years ago. And I think this is because of the what would I like to call the market. Good ideas rise to the surface. They prevail because they're good ideas over time, right? We have to have mm-hmm. debate and exchange of ideas. And then, of course, we go through this horrible period of time for humanity where uh, free thought is uh, extinguished and books are burned and, and, and the resulting horribleness from that terrible, mm-hmm. terrible period of time in human history, we suffered. Then we get the enlightenment. OK, so now it's, oh, hey, we can start doing science all of a sudden. It's not an accident that in the last 300 or so years, uh, life on Earth has, has exploded in, in many good ways and, of course, mm-hmm. many other ways that uh, may, might be bad or things we got to deal with. Our biology hasn't caught up to our technology, so we have a lot of issues there. So in the macro sense, um, people now are starting to think about, hey, it's not just about uh, what happens after I die, focus all my attention on where I'm going after I'm dead, but I can focus my attention on doing the right thing while I'm here. How do I live a good life right now? In the micro sense, I think there's been a huge move Um, to this sort of what I would call the culture of victimhood. Oh, you were born this way or that way. Uh And uh, poor you, there's nothing you can do. You need reparations. You need a handout. You need something special. Uh, What you really need is to learn about Epictetus. I mean, he was, talk about being born at a disadvantage. And yet look at what he did uh, to affect change 2000 years later. Don't give me that stuff. However, you're born, Um, Look, you can have a good life, be productive and live a fulfilling, wonderful, productive life. And so stoicism is maybe the antidote to what you might say, this sort of culture of victimhood. And I think people are really gravitating to it. And now, of course, we live Mm -hmm. at a time where it's easy. If you want to find out about stoicism, take the thing out of your pocket, put the word stoicism into Google and boom, everything that is written in in human knowledge will be at Mm -hmm. your disposal instantly. And I think Uh that says a lot for spreading good ideas as well. We possibly have more access to some texts. There are many texts that are lost to us now, but in some ways we might have access to better information than Marcus Aurelius had, because by his time, many Stoic texts were already lost. Um, and he certainly, he would have you know, loved to have access to all the commentaries and analysis on Stoicism that, that we have today. So we're more privileged in that regard. And just to flesh out what you said, Epictetus was a slave. He was born a slave. He was crippled, uh, left lame because he was tortured by his owner later in life. And I would say, this is a kind of uh, subjective opinion, but personally, I would say he's the single most influential teacher of philosophy in Roman history. Um, so kind of a big deal. I wanted to kind of just throw out a couple of things to you about stuff that people have said to me about why they think Stoicism is popular. It just occurred to me um, right now that I could maybe tell you, what do, they, what do people say to me? 
particularly young people that I've spoken to over the years and if that kind of resonates with you. And there's probably four or five things that they tend to say. So one of them, to come back to what we're, we're just talking about, is that people are drawn to Stoicism and find it interesting, they tell me, because it, they recognize it's the philosophical inspiration for REBT, which you mentioned, Albert Ellis's approach and cognitive behavioral therapy in general. And that gives it a kind of validation scientifically that psychoanalysis never had. So people think maybe stoicism actually works because the science seems to, in a slightly roundabout way, be backing that sort of approach. And so that's one of the reasons that they tell me that it's become more attractive to them over recent decades. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. If you're educated about this area, sure. Um, But people, you know, we have to meet them where they are. And um, I I think just sort of the fundamental backbone, the idea that uh, you control certain things in the world, in your life, um, you know, how you feel, your goals, your uh, responses to the world. These are things you control. People intuitively feel that that is true. It's got intuitive appeal. Yes, you and intuitively they say, you know what, there's something right about that. Taking the next step, and what yeah. are the implications of that in terms of how I run my life and what goals I set for myself? And as Bill Irvin would say, to internalize your goals. Yeah. I was thinking to myself this morning, I don't think I ever fail anymore because I set my goals in such a way uh-huh. that I'm in charge of whether I succeed or not. I mean, of course I do because uh-huh. uh, sometimes I don't act with the the character that I aspire to, or I don't give my best effort on something. And I, I got to, as, as Seneca says, I give myself a pardon this time and uh, it's don't do that again and improve. So I, I, let me say, it'd be accurate to say I hardly ever fail. And when I do, it's my own fault. What an uh-huh. empowering philosophy. The Stoics would often, in their language, I don't think, I don't know if they have a, an equivalent to what we call the victim mentality, a, a direct translation of that. But what they say very frequently um, in their own language, if uh, you know, listeners will pardon us for the kind of anachronism, is that they talk about a slave mentality, which is very similar to what I think we mean when we talk about a victim mentality and Epictetus talks about being enslaved to other people's opinions being enslaved to your own desires being enslaved to your anger like and he talks about people like Socrates and Diogenes as being free um, and as being kingly because they've liberated themselves from this kind of enslavement to opinion and uh, material possessions and things like that they've kind of risen above it and from what we would call a victim mentality I thought I'd mentioned four things that people tell me uh, appeal to them about stoicism. And some of them kind of resonate with stuff that you've mentioned earlier. So one of them is that people tell me they got into stoicism because they see it as a Western alternative to Buddhism that's kind of more consistent with their values and way of thinking than Buddhism or Taoism and and so on are. It gives them some of the same things they get from those traditions. Some people are drawn to it because they see it as a secular alternative to Christianity. So there's bits of Christianity they like, but they, you know, they're, they're uh, not religious in that sense, and they want something that's more based on reason and philosophy. Some people say they're drawn to it because they want something that's like CBT or self-help, but it's bigger in scope. It has more of a philosophy of life, vision, grander in scope. Um, and some people are drawn to it because they say it's like academic philosophy that we would study today, but it's more practical and more down to earth and more applicable 
to our day-to-day lives than what you would study in a university philosophy department for the most part. So those are some of the things that people tend to tell me, uh, draw them to the subject. I wondered if that triggered anything for you in terms of your thoughts or uh, views about how people are reacting to it today. Yeah, all all very powerful reasons. Um, interestingly enough, my wife is, uh, she's from a uh, country called Myanmar, better known as Burma. And she was raised in the Buddhist tradition, Theravada Buddhism. And uh, yeah, she would agree, I think, that um, Stoicism is probably accurately titled the Western version of Buddhism. However, there are some very important, very fundamental, uh, almost irreconcilable type differences at the very bottom root of it, which are fun to discuss. And I've got some ideas on how to tie those together. Uh, but yes, I, Buddhism... Well, what, do you think, what do you think they are? Oh, to tie them together? Now, what do you well, think? Well, do you want to spell out what the differences oh, are first of all? Oh, well, of course, if you are a meditator in the Buddhist tradition, what you uncover is, hey, Epictetus, uh, no, you're wrong about this. Uh, you don't. There are no things you control. You don't even control your own thoughts. They just simply pop into your head. Mm-hmm. So we can extend the zone of things you don't control to everything, not just the things that it appears to you that you are um, maybe following an illusion, what the Buddhist would call the illusion of the self. So that's a Im- mm. very important difference. The Buddhists, of course, are what I would call hard determinists. How do we tie this almost irreconcilable difference together? Well, um, this insight that you get from being a meditator, you can get it, and maybe you could be a uh, the equivalent of a sage in the Buddhist world. You're a Buddha. Uh, but to to know this idea with... with uh, in the course of your day is very difficult. We all get identified by thought. We forget this. We, we say things like, I'm angry, not I'm aware of a package of emotions and feelings and thoughts we label as anger. So because we suffer from the illusion of being identified with thought 99% of the time, mm-hmm. stoicism is more helpful. If you're going to be identified with thoughts, make them positive, productive, healthy thoughts rather than unhealthy, um, you know, anger and anxiety and these kinds of things. And stoicism is the route to try to have some effect on the thoughts that pop into your brain. And if you yeah. pay attention to this, you find that. As soon as I find a problem in life, I think, ah, uh, the stoic gods have sent me a challenge for me to wrestle with, and I'm going to test myself now and see how I do and grade myself and prepare for other challenges. So my brain immediately goes to that now because of my stoic training. The way that Stoicism and cognitive therapy tend to think about it is by making a distinction between voluntary and involuntary thought processes. So we call it strategic cognition or automatic cognition in cognitive therapy. And the Stoics make a distinction between judgments and impressions in their jargon or fantasia. Like So Epictetus would say, yeah, there's these thoughts that just pop into your mind. Like It might be triggered by something someone says to you. Like that impinges on your mind now because of something you've just seen or something you've just heard, or it might be a dream or a fever or a fantasy or just random stuff that pops into your head. And then he says to his students, what matters is what you do in response to it, like what you do next. And I think often when people are talking about stoicism today, actually, every time we discuss stoicism, it's always a good idea to talk about the popular misconceptions about the subject, that that never gets old in a way. Because anyone that's listening to this discussion that's not familiar with Stoicism might have seen guys like Andrew Tate 
or other social media influencers talking about Marcus Aurelius and talking about stoicism um, and mixing it up with what we sometimes call lowercase stoicism or the unemotional coping style that we study in psychology. And they're kind of two different things. Um, so when people talk about being stoic in the sense of being unemotional, they tend to think of their emotions as just being a kind of lump and they vent them or they suppress them, deal with them in that kind of way. That's a very unsophisticated way of understanding emotion. The ancient Stoics thought we need to begin by distinguishing the voluntary and the involuntary parts of emotion and also separating out the cognitions that influence our emotion and questioning whether they're based on truth or falsehood, whether they're rational or irrational. So they had a more nuanced understanding of emotion, I think, than many people realize today, and, a, and then therefore a more nuanced approach to psychotherapy. Um, than, and one of the disadvantages of the success of stoicism, in my view, is that you get good books like Bill Irvine's and John Sellers and Chris Gill and Massimo Pellucci and these guys, but there's, there's also a lot of, definitely you see articles appearing by people that don't look like they've ever read any books on the subject. This is a feature of modern journalism in general, I think. Like, so it becomes a hot topic. Journalists write about it, but they don't do their research and they end up characterizing stoicism as just kind of having a stiff upper lip and that's about all there is to it in their eyes. Yeah, just one quick uh, thought about that, what you just mentioned. I, I think that Epictetus in his, um, his, his disciplines, when he gets to the discipline of ascent, Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, okay, fine. Uh, these impressions come up. These are involuntary things. Somebody comes up behind you and scares you and you go, ah, okay, this emotion comes up. And now uh, you get to say, hey, you know, you're just an impression. Now I get to decide, make a reasoned judgment. I think the dispute that we spoke of earlier is the question of whether or not that is a voluntary choice. Epictetus would say, yes, you have a voluntary decision to make here. I think the Buddhist mindset says, no. Um, if an idea is going to pop in your head about whether or not you have given assent or not. And so that might be the place that there, there's this distinction. But on the other hand, it certainly feels like there is a voluntary choice there. We live life like there's mm-hmm. a voluntary choice there. If you go with that, then yeah. stoicism is the way uh, to make those thoughts um, positive. And then that's why I think it's more useful Mm-hmm. Uh, than maybe the Buddhist, what I call the Buddhist meditation position. But they're so both, most, study both. I never thought we'd get into a discussion about the metaphysical question of free will and determinism, which I, I, generally I avoid because it's quite a technical question. In yes, it is. Like, however, um, you know, it might be worth just mentioning briefly. Like, so most people instinctively are what we call metaphysical libertarians, which is different from completely different from libertarianism in politics, right? So metaphysical libertarians believe there's absolute free will. And it kind of imposes itself on the causal order somehow. And it comes from this idea that the soul is metaphysically separate from the, the body, and it, you know, like a ghost in the machine, as Gilbert Ryle said. Like so it has complete freedom. It's outside the causal order and it can do whatever it likes. Um, And determinists say, no, the universe runs like clockwork. You know, there's a reason for everything. Like, uh, you know, things are the result of antecedent causes, a chain of causation that maybe goes all the way back to the, the Big Bang. And then there are what we call soft, there are hard and soft determinists. Like, now, the Stoics are generally considered to be soft determinists. So they, you know, they're not, and it's a position that's very close 
to hard determinism. And sometimes the difference is mainly viewed as semantic. So the Stoics would say, well, there is a kind of internal freedom, but it's not incompatible with the idea that everything has causal antecedents. It's just a different way of looking at it. Like there are, we say that something is free if it's not obstructed. Like if my hands aren't tied, then I would say that I'm free. But that doesn't mean that it's free from an explanation or free from antecedent causes. So I think the Stoics in some ways would be closer to the position that you're ascribing to Buddhists than it might seem at first. Like even the ascent that they're talking about, they would have to say, has causal antecedents. And that's partly because they're materialists. They don't believe there is a metaphysical realm outside the physical world. Like they see it as kind of a, a, a big clockwork process. Although within that, they think it's reasonable to talk about personal responsibility and, and freedom as a concept. It's a very fun discussion. The hard determinist position that you might get from a meditation position, certainly no fun. Uh, it just makes you the observer. Uh, to the extent that there's a you at all. And, um, it, it, you know, there's not much you can do with that. That's a recognition that you're sort of, uh, you're observing things, you're observing things you uh, are conscious of, and that's it. You're con- there are two states, there's conscious and not conscious, and that's the end. Uh, and so the soft determinist position, the one that the Stoics take, uh, I think that's most compatible with life on earth, because even if you're a meditator, you're still lost in thought, far more than you are recognizing that thoughts are separate from what you observe. And so um, it's not as practical as stoicism. That's why I push stoicism before I push Mm -hmm. other things. Get your head around that first, and then we can have fun with whether you should be a soft determinist or a hard determinist, because it's an interesting metaphysical question that doesn't have a lot of practical implications for our lives. That said, there's a segue that we can reach for here from talking about free will versus determinism into your other main interest, which I think is very much connected with the concept of personal freedom. And that's the the live and let live movement. So I wonder if you could tell us, first of all, what on earth is the live and let live movement? Um, What does it stand for? Well, the live and let live movement is really an effort by um, people who have been sitting around kind of thinking up ways, look, we're all different. Let's have respect for all our fellow brothers and sisters. How is it that we could arrange things so we could live together on the planet in freedom mm-hmm. and peace? What is required? So now you, you move a little bit into my area because as a lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think about the laws and I'm not one of these lawyers who um, just does it to make a living. You might call me a legal junkie. I love studying the law. Mm-hmm. My question that I toy around with, what's the best rules of the world to deal with human interactions? I mean, if, if you're alone on the planet by yourself, you don't need such rules. So uh, if two people interact, we got to figure it out. And, you know, as I've learned about stoicism, I, I really thought there's some great connections here um, because I think that, and, and really what's key about the Stoics, maybe step back just a second. The reason the Stoics, I think, do so well is because they chart a course between the only thing that matters is virtue and I don't care about anything else, which leaves me as a cynic on the street. Yeah. Just, just uh, you know, trying to attain the virtuous life and rejecting all material possessions and sort of the hedonist position or even the Epicurean position. I got to get something external for me to live a good life. The Stoics say I got to reject that. I don't want anything. Uh, if I set things out of my control, now I'm uh, at the whim of fate. But 
the brilliant thing the Stoics do is split the baby a little bit. They compromise mm-hmm. a little, in my opinion here. And they say, mm-hmm. well, these are indifferent, but they're preferred. Mm-hmm. So there are things that I prefer. I prefer. It's good to have money. It's good to have health. If I use them in, in the same way I use my high character to accomplish the high virtues, and now I'm fine. Okay, great. How does that look politically? Well, same thing. There are some things we control. I, what do I control? My body, my property, my money, my time. I control those things. I have preferences about how Don Robertson uses his things. If you say, Mark, how should I use my body, property, money? And I got, I got opinions on that. I think mm-hmm. I got good ones to give you. But at the end of the day, I don't control that. And so in thinking about how would we express the Stoic philosophy in terms of law, in politics, in the government. This is what government and politics is. It's about law. Think about the three branches of government. One makes the law, one enforces the law, one interprets the law. Guess what? It's all about law. What's law? Law are the rules you got to follow. And what we're saying is in the legal world, the rule should be don't aggress against anybody else. This violates the virtue of justice, right? When I punch somebody, when I steal something, when I fraud somebody, coerce somebody, or do something that puts them in a real danger, that's that's not acting in accordance with the virtues. The law should always prevent that. Now, I prefer that you act with virtue, but that's my preference. I don't control that. That's outside the law. We call that the moral principle. And here we say, just act as an excellent human. We start with the idea of high character, where we import. Not, and we call them the Stoic virtues, but they predate the Stoics, right? They go back to Socrates. There's probably people we don't know about before Socrates. There certainly are people before Socrates and some we know about. But the, the reason these ideas have lasted is because they're the right ones. They're the ones that work. So we've incorporated what you might call the four virtues or the Stoic virtues with a whole bunch of other things, things like thinking win-win and remaining open-minded and building high levels of trust and having tolerance for ways other people live. Our goals here are to optimize human happiness and well-being and minimize suffering. But all of this is outside of my personal control. So I do my best to influence others here. And again, that's if you're going to attack live and let live and you're going to attack stoicism, that's the place you attack, right? You say, Look, to the Stoic, you got to have some amount of money and some amount of health to Mark and the Live and the Live movement. You say, look, you got to have, you got to put some charity into the law. You got to force people to act virtuous in certain ways. Uh, And we say, no, you don't and you can't because people disagree on these kinds of things. Virtue ethics is great. But when you get into questions like, well, how much should I give to charity and when and which charity, people start disagreeing. And instead of me trying to force you and you trying to force me, we say, take it out of the law and let's try to let's try to persuade each other. So, I mean, the other thing that occurs to me is that there's the Stoics and for Greek philosophy in general has always had a kind of I almost want to say an ambivalent relationship or a love hate relationship with lawyers. Like, because lawyers in the ancient world studied rhetoric and were closely associated with the sophist movement um, because part of their role was to use persuasion skills to influence juries. That's right. Um, 
and it overlapped with uh, or political oratory as well. Similar techniques were used to influence the Athenian assembly or the public in general. Um, and a number of great philosophers were lawyers. Like the most obvious example, so we might as well just drop his name into the conversation because we haven't mentioned it so far, is Cicero, like, who's one of the most important political legal theorists in history. He's not a Stoic, but he's almost like an honorary Stoic, quasi-Stoic, because he was very heavily influenced by Stoicism and very well educated in Stoicism. Um, and Cicero was a lawyer and a philosopher. But there's a tension between these two traditions um, because the Stoics and other Socratic philosophers believed that we have to be extremely wary of rhetoric and persuasion. Um, it's one of the biggest threats that we face. It's a it's a fun point. I'm going to take Cicero on our team, by the way, and, I, and by our team, I mean the Stoic team, because his objections are more metaphysical and uh, epistemological. In terms of the ethics, he's on our side. That's where I think yeah. the Stoicism shines. So I'll take him as the Stoic. Um, but I agree with you. Uh, look, there are different varieties of lawyers as well. And when I train lawyers, and I and I do, I've got several lawyers at my firm. I've I've raised them all as little puppies. I hired them while they're clerks and trained them. And we don't take cases that push positions we disagree with. And so um, we don't have to employ rhetoric. I argue for what I believe are the right positions. I have a hat as a lawyer and I'm going to advocate, but I'm only going to advocate in a certain direction. And it's fun when people come into my law firm and they want us to take a case that is sort of been pushing an anti freedom position. I say, look, you, you may be on the right side of the law, but we think the law is wrong. So we decline your case because we're the attorneys for freedom. I don't advocate for positions I think are wrong, period. And that's easy as a criminal defense lawyer, right? Because everybody gets a fair trial. I believe in due process. I don't care what the allegation is. Uh, before we throw someone in prison, uh, at least on my watch, you're going to get a fair trial. And then if they're really guilty of a real crime, which means there's a victim and they go to prison, I don't lose sleep at night. Uh, you know, the people say, how can you defend such people? That That's easy if they're actually guilty of real crimes. It's the ones who are innocent of real crimes. Those are the ones that leave us up at night, uh, you know, worrying about big time because those are the especially hard ones. But we fight super hard for everyone, because I believe in due process and I believe before the government gets to throw someone in a cage, they damn well better prove the case, every element beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, and, and, and when I take my lawyer hat on, I put an activist hat on, I push live and let live because I think it's the right, I think it's the only way, there is no other way to get to freedom and peace than to make illegal aggression, no matter who's acting a person, a corporation, a government, I don't care. Nobody gets to aggress. And at the same time, while I'm while I'm defending the rights of people to act in, to be a peaceful jerk, if you will, I'm encouraging them as persuasively as I can to follow the four virtues because there's an important line in all yeah. of these philosophies, including the Stoics, including the Buddhists, they don't really talk about how does this offload into the political realm? And that's why I think we've, we're such a mess politically. And Stoicism's great individual. In fact, I'm writing a chapter in my book called The Inner Peace. Stoicism can get you to inner freedom and inner peace, but there's an external issue as well. How do we relate to each other? And there, we need to offload these ideas into the political realm and swallow the bitter pill that we're going to defend the rights of other people to be peaceful jerks 
to act uh-huh. in ways that are against the poor virtue so long okay. as they do address. Let me ask you a trickier question then. All right. Just because I, I feel I feel like I, you're doing a good job of promoting uh, the live and let live principle. Does that extend to promoting the freedom of individuals to use rhetoric as a persuasion, a manip- such as, for example, political rhetoric, like in a way that could potentially be misleading or harmful to the general public? So how do we, on a live and let live principle, a principle that advocates freedom in this way, how do we defend ourselves against what the Stoics saw as one of the biggest threats that we face? Like the use of, let's say, political rhetoric, or it could be social media. Uh, yeah, misinformation maybe I think is is what you're getting to. And yes, look, let me just step back and say I don't want to oversimplify it. I went very quickly through initiating non-consensual force. All of those words need to be defined. There's gray areas all along the road. Fraud, coercion, exactly. What's the line between persuasion and coercion? Uh, who's competent to make these decisions? What's an adult? All of these are very hard questions. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. These are guidelines. And so there are areas where reasonable minds disagree. The issue of competency is one of them. And the issue of what's an adult? Some states say 16, some say 17, some yeah. say 18. The question of competency, you could be you know, 40 years old and there could be a competency question. How do we deal with that? Look, I like how we deal with that now. Um, if I have someone and I think that I have a question about their competency, we do what's called a, a pre-screen. So a psychologist comes in and answers some basic questions and makes a recommendation. I think we should take a closer look or not. And if we do a closer look, then I get one on my team. The other side gets one on their team. We hash it out. The judge makes an individualized decision. Now, there's a different process in each state. There are different questions. That's fine. We don't need exactly one process. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution here. So rhetoric, what's the line between fraud and uh, maybe aggressive uh, persuasion? Look, I I tend to think where we've drawn the line right now is about the right place, right? A free society has to allow for free speech, including bad ideas and especially ideas we disagree with. I like John Stewart's mill position here. We carve out a few areas. We say, okay, it goes a little too far in some areas. Fine. Um, at some point, persuasion turns into coercion. And yeah. where we draw that line, if we make a one-size-fits-all answer here, then we're okay. more likely to get it wrong. I like small communities making these decisions and see which ones work out the best. And like with Stoicism, the best ideas will rise to the surface. So... Uh- Stated the kind of status quo is, or where we draw the line at the moment is approximately right, right? Which leads me into another tricky question, or like because it immediately comes to mind. Um, because maybe the landscape's changing, Mark, in some regards, and the respect that I'm thinking of, it's very topical at the moment, would be the use of AI, um, by the media, uh, for example, um, and more sophisticated social media algorithms, like marketing algorithms. like So they've upped the ante, if you like, the introduction AI has in terms of social media and the government, if you like, and large corporations' ability to use rhetoric, marketing, persuasion, and manipulation strategies. So is that a reason perhaps to reconsider? I mean, I guess we always have to reconsider where the line 
has been drawn in terms of what constitutes aggression or coercion uh, by corporations. I mean, I think if we think about individuals, like my buddy using persuasion on me down the local bar, it seems like a trivial example. But what about Facebook, you know, using manipulation strategies and rhetoric that's fueled by AI? Like, does that not pose quite a, a serious threat? And how does the live and let live principle cope with that? Should the, to what extent do we need to limit the freedom of corporations to do things like that? Well, let me say I'm very concerned about AI for many different reasons. And I think to some extent we're sort of guinea pigs, right? Because, uh, you know, human evolution has been happening for maybe two million years. And all of a sudden, boom, look what's changed just in our lifetimes. And now um, I think ultimately this may, in terms of the misinformation stuff, play out in a good way. And here's why. I think we're going to get to a spot. We haven't hit rock bottom exactly yet, but we're going to get to a spot where uh, AI can make it look like anybody has now given a very convincing speech on anything somebody wants to say. So we're going to get to a point where you say nobody, you, even if you've seen it and it looks like the person and sounds like the person, it still could be completely false. Okay, so we'll get there. What we're going to need is a technology to verify who actually said what. What that technology is, I don't know, but I think there'll be something in them. There always is. There's a counter technology. So when Donald Robertson says something, I can verify that this actually came from Don, even though I got a video on Facebook that shows Don saying something that I hate stoicism and I'm now an Epicurean or something like that. And so I think that that's going to happen. In terms of corporations, we got to treat them exactly. We should have special rules for corporations or governments or groups. We treat them exactly the same. And so if they're trespassing across that line that we now call fraud, and it's very, you know, fraud has many different elements and you have to be very careful. A misstatement yeah. isn't fraud. It's got to be a material misstatement. Somebody has to actually rely on it. You need harm. But if they check the boxes of fraud, we should treat that as an aggression, which it is now, and deal with it accordingly. And what you're going to find, and this, this is what we found. I remember when Uber came on and I thought, Really? You mean the government's not going to license people? Anybody can show up in their personal car and I'm going to let my wife and my daughter get in with some strange guy. This is never going to work. I couldn't envision what the market delivered. And now, yeah. you know, I think about what I let them get in a cab where only the government has given a license out and we don't have the same things on the Uber app. I don't know what the last 700 people who took a ride from this person have to say and exactly where they are and how to contact everybody. So, there are things about technology that we can't envision. It's sort of an unfair question to say, tell me now what technology is going to come up with to deal with this sort of upcoming problem. I don't know. What I do know is that we need to have the right principles at the bottom of our analysis and be very consistent yeah. in how we offload them and think carefully and take our emotions out of it. And again, I love the supremacy of reason. With the Stoics, we take exactly the same position in the live and that live global peace movement because, I, frankly, I feel we're running out of time, right? Because when when smaller groups of people start getting nukes, which is going to happen at some point, yeah. there's no technology that has ever been developed that hasn't eventually become available. When yeah. that day comes, if we're not prepared to take those nukes away from those people, we're done. Same with engineering global pandemics. Same with... Uh, developing AI. We've got very serious global problems. We can't solve this on the local level. We need a global peace movement 
where the people of the world can organize under a banner, what better name than live and let live. Our philosophy is as consistent with that idea as possible. And so um, it's urgent. So if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're worried about these global issues and you think, hey, we need a global movement, check out liveandletlive.org. Mm-hmm. And then if you see something you disagree with, help me improve the message. Happy to hear from people, especially those who disagree with me. If you bring it civil, you will always get a civilized response from me. Well, let, let me ask you a related question then. To what extent does... And I, I see your philosophy as a sort of work in progress, like you're saying. You know, I can see already, you know, I can see by looking at your website that you've kind of refined it and you've modified it a little bit. Yep. To what extent does live and let live principle assume that individuals are competent to know when they're being manipulated or deceived? By corporations using AI, AI and rhetoric and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, well, we start with the analysis that things apply to competent adults, right? So if you're not a competent adult, then you don't get to make decisions about things. The question of competency is in your wheelhouse, and we both know it's a very difficult question. We don't know really how to define exactly what's competent. This is why we would be against sort of a national or a global rule. This is what competency means. Instead, We'd favor a local community rule. And then let's see how the local community rules play out. Like Arizona might say, you know, California does a really good job. We've had some problems here with the way we've determined competency. Let's adopt what they do over. That's how it works now. And so the better mechanisms at determining real competency, we need to we need to adjust those dials. And people in different yeah. places might have slightly different risk tolerances and concerns here. So it's okay that people in the Midwest have a slightly different determination of what competency is than the people on the East Coast or the West. It's okay. It's fine. If they get too far out of line, right? Let's just say somebody, some state says, you know, we've decided that the age of competency is, uh, you know, 10 years old. We can say to them, look, that's not a place where reasonable minds disagree. And we can say to them, that's not, and the reason that's not is, you're now aggressing against an eight-year-old and we can defend the rights of that eight-year-old. So we're not tolerating that. And we do have to set some guidelines. What's reasonable right now, 16 to 18 in the United States, pick a number perfectly fine. So what if somebody picked 15 or somebody picked 19? Okay, we have to decide those questions. There's no way around that. We can't make everybody happy. But I think what you're right here in the law is not to get your personal views enshrined into the law. What you're right is to get a reasonable interpretation of the definition of aggression. If reasonable minds are disagreeing and the rule is selected in your community that you didn't like, but it's a reasonably argued for rule, move to a different area or suck it up and deal with that reasonable construction of the rule. That's the best we can do because otherwise everybody's a judge in their own case. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, let's go back and define some of the core concepts that you mentioned, because you mentioned you touched on the fact that there's a need to do that when we're spelling out the principles of a philosophy like this. How do you define? How are you defining aggression? Well, aggression needs to be very carefully defined because it's our legal principle. Fortunately, it is pretty well defined over the years, and so I've defined it as, uh, and, and of course, I break it down to serious ag- aggression and, and less serious aggression, which it divides into criminal cases in civil cases. And so on what I call serious, think criminal, is 
initiating non-consensual force against another person or their property. This is hitting somebody in the face, stealing their property. That's aggression. Also, and then, you know, you think about initiating non-consensual. If you take away initiating and it's just using non-consensual, well, that's self-defense. If you take away, um, if you say it's okay to initiate force consensually, think of the defensive lineman in football, right? The quarterback's hoping not to be hit um, and he's initiating it, but he's consented to it in any event. So it has to be an initiation of non-consensual force. That's aggression against a person or their property, right? Because property crimes are real crimes. Also fraud, also coercion. Of course, we've got to define those, but these are all already very developed. We've been refining these for at least hundreds of years very carefully. And so how does that relate, for example, to the government's use of force, like um, in terms of, for instance, prosecuting people uh, for committing crimes. This is the government. If, if I can't do it, then the government can't do it. If I can do it, the government acting as my agent can do it. So if you steal my wallet, you have initiated force. If, if I, I can now get my wallet back from you, I can hire a police officer who's my agent. I've delegated rights to him and the government. That's where governments come from. We delegate rights to the government. Otherwise, they don't exist. If there's no us, there's no government. And so the government would act properly. Look, I think you have two rights. Right number one, a substantive right to not be aggressed against. Everything else derives from that. And number two, a procedural right to have due process in determining whether you have violated that substantive rule. So you get a fair trial. We don't get to, we don't flip a coin. If Don is accused of stealing my wallet, we don't flip a coin that overthrows everything else we're trying to do. So those two rights, and of course, both need interpretation. The idea of due process gives rise to things like you have a right to cross-examine and remain silent and appeal and double jeopardy and many other things. So there's also a category here of creating what we lawyers would say a substantial risk of uh, an initiation of non-consensual force as well. This is the drunk guy with the gun. This is doing unsafe, storing unsafe explosives or chemicals on your property that while haven't trespassed yet, are creating a big risk and that risk is intolerable. These can be reckless crimes. We have them now. Drunk driving fits in this box. And then, yeah. of course, there's the less serious variety, which is breaches of contract, what we call torts, which are negligent trespasses. Yeah. And also the breach of a fiduciary duty, the reason a parent has to take has an obligation to provide for the minor. If you fail that, you're a fiduciary. At some point, we can take your kid away and appoint a proper guardian. But though yeah. all of that box is aggression, fortunately, it's already very well defined. I mean, yes, they're different state to state, but we have very intricate rules and case law on all of this. What about what's the position of, of the live and let live and let live movement vis-a-vis -vis taxation, for example? Yeah, taxation is a very difficult question because we start from the idea that we, our, our world is replete with taxation right now. So I can tell you, we certainly would be against the idea that we would snap our fingers and say, okay, taxation is taking somebody's money without their permission. Let's snap our fingers and stop that. We may never get to a perfect world, right? We're not utopians, but we do want to try to move in a very smart, reasonable, rational way 
to a place where there's as little aggression or no, I mean, look, no, we're never going to get to no aggression. Somebody's going to punch somebody in the face, right? Do we deal with that appropriately? And have we aligned the rules to say that's always wrong? So yes, we want to take those issues of taxation and devolve them down. We can start with ideas of morality, right? Where I'm taking your money or you're taking my money because we're implementing moral principles and instead encourage people to do these things voluntarily. Voluntary kindness is one of our aspirational values. But you get eventually down to very hard questions. How okay, do we so let, let me interject there, if you don't mind, because sure. I want to ask a follow-on question. What about corporation tax, for example? So if your goal is to get to the point where individuals are free to choose whether to what extent they pay taxes, I think would be the ideal and the government doesn't have to use force to recover them. What about corporations where their fundamental structure arguably doesn't predispose them towards acts of kindness towards society, but rather like towards increasing profits? So corporations don't necessarily have compassion and kindness and sort of virtues that you're talking about. So what's your position on corporation tax? One of the things that always sets off, or I see red flags, is when people make generalized statements about groups, right? All people, uh, all corporations, all this and that. Corporations should be treated exactly the same as we treat individuals. They shouldn't be given any benefits, nor should they be given any disadvantages. So some corporations do great good in the world um, through charitable works. I mean, there's, there's no denying that. Others do good just because of the fact that they make commerce better. By by doing business, they are actually doing good. Some corporations do bad. How do we define bad? Bad is aggressing. That's what bad is. So if the corporation is not violating the rules on aggression, then I just say they're not engaged in fraud. They're not using force. They're trading. They're, they're giving goods and services to people who want them at the best prices, which is how they prosper in a free world. There's no reason to be upset if you don't like the corporation or their culture or something, uh, shop somewhere else, right? Boycott them, do something else. But I wouldn't give them a free pass because they're corporations, nor would I be more harsh on them than I would an individual. Corporations are fictitious individuals, but they should be treated exactly the same way as everybody else with the same rules, no exceptions, period. They are fictitious individuals, but they don't have the same motivations intrinsically as individuals necessarily um they're structured in order to maximize profits like so the i guess the the question i'd like to ask you then ideally would you eliminate taxation on corporations as well like would that would in an ideal world then would you would you eliminate corporate taxation To me, maximizing profits in an environment where nobody gets to be an aggressor is to say you are doing the best job satisfying the greatest numbers of people with a good or service that they actually want. So maximizing profits in a world where there's no crony capitalism, we need to to be very fair about that, right? Crony capitalism is is the idea that the corporation is going to get in bed with some legislator by donations or something like that, change the law to, to advantage themselves over another corporation in some aspect. Like that is aggression. And so we're against every bit of that. What we are left with is a corporation that only has the power to deliver goods and services at a good price. 
So would I, how would I treat taxation as to corporations? The same way I would treat taxation as to everyone and everything. Now, what's, what should corporate taxes be lowered before individual taxes? Or what about taxes that support social security? Look, there are deals that have been made already like social security that need to be honored. I wouldn't reduce benefits that are earned. Veterans have accumulated benefits. I'm a veteran of the Marine Corps myself. If you earn that vet, that veteran's benefit or some other benefit because you worked for the government, or all of those contracts need to be honored. But we need to chart a smart course where we grow the economy, right? So we can raise standards of living at the same time we're reducing taxation. And this is an area where reasonable minds disagree. What should we do first? If I was in charge, I don't know what I would do first. I would think very carefully. The last things I would take away would be the critical infrastructure things like national defense and courts and cops and those kinds of things. But Mm -hmm. as I've discussed in my book, and we don't have probably enough time to talk about it now, there are ways we can foster peace while devolving, we got to get our military down. We spend too much money. We, we're having conflicts. We can't afford another war because the weapons are too big. So this all is part of a holistic change of attitude, a paradigm shift, a change in worldview. It's a monumental project, but I internalize my goals. I, my goal is to do the best I can do to try to affect peace and freedom. And if it doesn't happen, I don't control what Donald Robertson does or anybody listening to this podcast. I control what Mark Victor does. Mark Victor is going to reason as carefully as possible in a way calculated to get us to freedom and peace on a global scale. So I can see how that applies to individuals. And corporations, as we've acknowledged, is a bit trickier. So let's, for the sake of argument, pick what I think is maybe a more challenging example. Right? Okay. If we follow your live and let live principle, would that mean maximizing the freedom of big pharma? Like, and would it mean, except insofar as they commit substantive fraud, allowing them to use AI and technology as part of their marketing, maybe for the purposes of misinformation in order to maximize their profits from the general public? Or to what extent could we place restrictions on that in a way that's still consistent with the live and let live principle? Should we should we like free them from the burden of taxation? Should we free them from restrictions on their communications and the information like that they spread? Or do we need to introduce safeguards to control the way that they're disseminating information and marketing pharmaceutical pro- products to the, the general population? To what extent, and I guess that's, to what extent does that turn on how much we trust these uh, corporations? And I'm picking Big Pharma, obviously, because it's a controversial example and, you know, a, a set of companies that, that people don't trust. Yeah. Well, maybe I misunderstand your question because I noted you used in your question the word fraud, and that makes it easy for me because yeah. if the corporation is engaged in any aspect sure. of fraud. I'm well, excluding that. Like, so let's say, let's say we take it for granted that if they're committing fraud, that's a crime. But what about if they're not committing what we currently regard as fraud, but they're spreading misinformation and using sophisticated marketing strategies to mislead the general public, for example, into purchasing medication that's being overprescribed? I mean, if you want me to give a specific example, there are many people, for instance, that work in the, I mean, what I think the largest the uh, most profitable pharmaceutical on the market are the SSRIs 
or antidepressants, from what I understand. Um, and the market for them in the US is much bigger than it is in, in European countries, for example. So that may be an example of the kind of thing. Like, to what extent do, with the live and let live principle, allow big pharma to have more freedom to market SSRIs to the general public in a way well, that might be misleading um, by telling them that they should go to their doctor and request these drugs and so on without maybe explaining alternatives to them or educating them about the limitations of the research on them and so on. Well, remember, Big Pharma right now, like many other big corporations, enjoys benefits, right? Uh, because they, they're they able to donate lots of money to politicians who are able yeah. to make laws that violate the rules of aggression to the benefit of these big companies. We call that crony capitalism. Yeah. And it exists in many different forms. Crony capitalism is a violation of the uh, rules on aggression. So we have to outroot, uproot all of that. In terms sure. of your examples, right? And maybe they're getting away with this right now. If Actually, let me, sorry to interrupt, but let me give you a clearer, like just an okay. extension of that example that maybe makes it a bit clearer. Um, so I'm a bit wary about getting into specifics. So I might be wrong about this. But from my recollection, you're in America, you're allowed to market SSRIs directly to the general public and to suggest in TV commercials that people should request them from their uh, family doctor in the uk that's illegal like and so we don't allow ssris or similar drugs to be marketed directly to the general public um because the idea is that they don't have the expert knowledge that would be required to know whether they're being manipulated by pharmaceutical companies whereas you know doctors understand how to interpret medical research. Um, well, I would say I certainly wouldn't restrict anybody from putting accurate information out to the market. However, yeah. in your question is the notion, I think, that what they're putting out is misinformation. Hey, misinformation. You, need, you need this medif- medication. It will cure X, Y, and Z. And really, they don't need it. Really, it doesn't. Okay, now I think you're probably into a fraud because when I look at the statements of fraud, right, is it a material misstatement? Yes. Do they know somebody's going to rely on this? Yes. Has somebody relied on it? Yes. Have they relied on it to their detriment and suffered harm? Yes. So I would check the boxes under your scenario and say, this is indeed a fraud. Sorry, no protection from the big government on for you here just because you gave lots oh. of money. What, but if it's- what, what if you're not lying to people? But for example, the, like to come back to the the idea of rhetoric that we mentioned earlier. So the thing would be where it gets trickier is there are more subtle forms of persuasion and manipulation. And for example, one of them would be just leaving information out. Like so, maybe promoting a treatment to client. Like in therapy, we're obligated to tell clients if there are alternative treatments, the uh, empirically validated treatments, I don't mean alternative therapy, by the way, I mean, other medical treatments um, that we haven't mentioned to them that might have a stronger evidence base, right? So you could deceive, you could commit a lie of omission. It's a slightly more subtle way of misleading the public by leaving key information out. And so suppose the pharmaceutical industry are committing lies of omission, or they're cherry picking data. So they're not just straight up lying about things, but maybe using more subtle rhetorical techniques to deceive the public as part of the marketing strategy. And that's something that, that's maybe currently allowed on TV in America, but not allowed in the UK. How, how would the live and let principle choose between the UK approach, for example, versus the US approach in that regard? Yeah, as with Stoicism, we always want to return to the fundamental principles, right? The idea here is that 
um, you're you're frauding somebody. You don't get to do that, right? And so a mater- what we call in the law a material mm-hmm. omission is treated right. exactly the That's same way as a false statement. And so if if they're doing it, if it's a material omission, right? They left something out that's not that important. Okay, fine. But if you left something out that was really important and you did it intentionally and you did it with the knowledge that somebody would rely on it and somebody did and they to their detriment, that's fraud. So I think we apply the same. I mean, I'm always going to seek, like I don't come to the table with any preconceived, I'm not trying to protect corporations or injure them. I'm trying to offload in as consistent a manner the underlying philosophy as fairly and justly as I possibly can. So are there not, I mean, again, to come back to the the basic concept of rhetoric as a discipline, it seems to me there are 101 ways to manipulate and mislead the general public that don't necessarily fall under the legal definition of fraud. I may be wrong about that. Okay, so let's deal with those. Yeah. So let's imagine that corporations are saying things that by our definition that we've talked about now do not amount to fraud, but they're still kind of misleading people. Okay, well, then there's a need in the market for reasonable information, right? And so if people Mm -hmm. get misled and they're constantly suffering as a result of this, you would think somebody and I'm just going to pick, you know, Johns Hopkins or uh, Donald Robertson or somebody comes out in the market says, hey, you know, I'm a respected source. And because, you know, we're in a free market area now, as long as they're not committing fraud, they can kind of use rhetoric and this and that. Here's what we say. And then I trust, again, you know, we have to we have to contour the law in a way that encourages people to seek out the right sources, right? We don't want a nanny state that's yeah. overpowering. And we saw this a lot during COVID, right? Because there are experts yep. that say X and there are experts yep. that say Y. At some point, you got to select which expert makes more sense to you. And so, I, long- I always tend to check there just to agree with you very strongly. I think the fundamental problem is the, and I'm very interested in public health communication, is the the general public getting struggling to figure out which experts are bogus and which ones are credible. Yep. Like, so we're in this position in life in general of we can't know yes. everything. Right. Like, so we have to consult experts, but how do you know? Unless you already are an expert, how do you know whether someone's a genuine expert or a bogus expert? And the, the way, the way you traditional- know is you see how it plays tra- out. You see hmm. how it plays out, right? And so at some point, this we have to trust that people saying the right things in an environment, and again, this might be the issues of social media that you address, but in an environment where information, accurate information spreads throughout the market and people mm-hmm. are motivated to trust certain that they should, and then they'll benefit from that. And others who are not, they won't, and they will suffer from that. And eventually the people who suffer will say, hey, we suffered, they benefited. Let's let the market do this. Because if we, if we force it, well, then you're always going to have the skepticism that you have now because people aren't free to make choices. People have to be free to make choices that are not in their interest as we've defined. Like, look, I Mm -hmm. I might think it's bad to eat dairy. In fact, I generally do. I don't eat red meat. I don't eat pork or chicken or turkey. That's what I think. But I'm not trying to force that on you, even though I think it might uh, lead you to the number one killer of heart disease. So this comes back to the issue of competence. And I think before when we were talking about competence, the baseline example is with children. And whether, for example, they're competent to consent to medical treatment or, or so on. Um, but then there are other more nuanced questions of competence. For example, whether someone is competent to know whether they're being misled with regard to medical research data, 
for instance. Yeah. I'll give a specific example, a really common example. As long as I can remember, um, the media have traded on the fallacy of confusing correlation and causation in medical research almost every day in the British yeah. tabloid newspapers. Right. They'll report correlational or observational studies right. as right. if they led to causal conclusions. Right. People now, eat walnuts who live to 130, eat five yeah. walnuts a day, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And every clinician, let's say every evidence-based clinician, every researcher would spot that immediately. It's one of the first things you're taught. But unless you're taught that that's a fallacy, you'd have to therefore know something about methodology like, you're not going to know that someone's using research in this deceptive way. Now, to me, what we just went through with the pandemic was a colossal breakdown in public health communication. And we saw many issues, but one of them was a huge explosion on social media of people committing the fallacy of confusing correlation causation, just to pick one really easy, specific example. And that would be like someone saying that one plus one equals three, like... But the person that they're saying it to not understanding the methods of arithmetic, so they don't know that that's false because they don't know how addition works, for example. If you don't know basic medical research methods, you're not going to understand when someone's manipulating research data to mislead you about the findings. So how, if we assume that adults who are in sound mental health and so on are competent to know whether someone's a real expert or a bogus expert, or if they're being misled, like, can we assume that level of competence in them if they don't have training in research methods, for example, but they're being fed information about research that ex- genuine experts in the field would, would spot immediately as, uh, you know, as, as uh, not methodologically sound, as misleading? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at some point, and we may be at that point, when you put me in a corner and you say, Mark, I'm going to now control for the variable of fraud and I'm going to take as a given there's no fraud and I'm Uh going to control for the variable of competency. They they do not fail the test of competency. So you have a competent adult who is Mm -hmm. making a decision that based on information that is not fraud and they're making a decision that actually turns out bad for them. I'm going to say, you know what? Uh, that's the concept of freedom right there. You get to make decisions if you're a competent adult and you're not being defrauded. You get to make decisions that don't turn out to be in your self-interest. I don't want to subsidize the kind of conduct by competent adults relying on non-fraudulent uh, information because you know, and crossing to our friends in economics, when you mm-hmm. subsidize something, you will get more of it. And when you subsidize uh, uh, whatever, uh, I, I guess I would call it intentional ignorance, right? When you subsidize, I'm in, I'm voluntarily being ignorant of the facts, you're going to get more of that. And so I think that people who choose to um, ignore real experts and rely on non-fraudulent information, if they're otherwise competent, they suffer from their bad decisions, learn from them and mm-hmm. make better decisions going forward. Welcome to living in a free society because there's no... The only other way we can do this, Don, is by saying, I, I, hi, I'm Don, I'm Mark. We have a foundation where we're going to help you make these kinds of decisions and you should voluntarily avail yourself of our, of our advice. And if you don't, well, then right. you're on your own. I'm comf- we have to be comfortable with that at some point if we're going to support a free and peaceful world. Otherwise, it's a nanny state and everybody's fighting over what level of um, nanny in nannyism that we're going to impose on other people, and, and soon we're going to be in a spot where I'm going to tell you you can't have dairy because it leads to heart attacks, and no. you have 
I'm going to suggest that you're committing the slippery slope fallacy there, right? Uh, because it doesn't necessarily lead to the extreme form of a nanny state to have milder restrictions on things. So that's, well, a rhetor- that, that's of, perhaps that's a rhetorical strategy, refutation. Well, I'm, I'm doesn't, one nece- doesn't necessarily lead to the other. I'm in but, favor of restrictions. The ones that border on aggression, those yeah. are the proper restrictions. Beyond that, now I'm helping my fellow brothers and sisters and I'm forcing my help on them. I'm actually aggressing against them if they don't want my help. There's something else that you've mentioned a couple of times that I wanted to ask you about. And I guess it's, it, I'm going to draw particularly on my clinical experience in this regard. So one of your, I would say this is one of the premises in the argument you followed so far, that people should be allowed to make mistakes and learn from them, right? And they can see if something's harmed them and therefore they'll, you know, maybe they'll regret it afterwards or so on, right? However, what we generally see in therapy um, over and over again is people that haven't learned from their experience and have failed to notice that a strategy that they're using is counterproductive. So we often see people that will go on indefinitely doing something. Uh, again, it probably helps to give a specific example. Um, there are many countless examples we could give of that from therapy. But for instance, there might be um, somebody who... Hey, I'll give you a, what seems like a trivial example because I'm drinking coffee right now. I think every single insomniac I've ever seen when I do my initial assessment with them tells me that they drink loads of coffee. Right. And so that seems ridiculous. Right. So you might say, well, maybe the reason you're having problems getting to sleep at night is because you drank 20 cups of coffee earlier in the day. Right. But they don't see the connection. Like humans have a shocking ability to live in denial or, you know, not not really understand the, the obvious consequences of their actions. So they would say, I need to drink coffee because I'm so tired yeah. every day because I've got insomnia. But they don't think maybe my insomnia is made worse or possibly even caused by the amount of coffee that I'm consuming. Now, it seems ridiculous to an outsider, but those people have been doing this maybe for decades and would potentially do it indefinitely until somebody like a therapist intervenes and helps them to evaluate, do what we call functional analysis and help them to to gain more insight into the consequences of their actions. So it seems to me surprising amount of time people fail to notice that their behavior is harming them in the long I think, term. I love your example and I love the question because um, I think it, it really puts the discussion where it needs to be. So how do we remedy this? Well, there's one way to remedy it, which is we impose our will on them and we say, look, uh, no longer will you be allowed to drink coffee. That's one way to do it. That's the way we're doing it now in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. I'm simply saying, no, we can't do that. And the reason we can't do that is because your example is not just limited to coffee. It's limited to a multitude of things. We don't all agree on them. We have varying ideas about what's important and what's not. And then secondly, I would say to you, we also don't can't calculate how this person values the coffee, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they may get a lot of joy and, and wonderfulness out of drinking coffee that we calculate a little differently. And I don't want to substitute my calculation for their calculation. Because now I'm in a position where I'm sort of superior to them. I'm running their lives. And I don't want to be in that position. I don't want, first, I don't I don't feel right being in that position. I don't get to tell another brother or sister human being who's competent, who's not being defrauded, there's no aggression involved. Mm-hmm. I don't get to force my will on them. And I don't want them forcing their will on me because 
there are decisions that I make in life as well that are, if you followed me around all day, Don, you'd say, Mark, why are you eating this chocolate? Why are you doing this or that? You could exercise longer. And there are many things like that that I continue to do, even though I know maybe I suffer from them, but I also get some benefit to them. That's the part of living life that we have to recognize others are entitled to make choices, even if they're bad. What if instead of coffee, it's tranquilizers like benzodiazepines or uh, antidepressants like SSRIs, and this restriction in question wouldn't be on the individual, but on the freedom of big pharma to... Uh, market uh, these products to them directly in a manipulative but not technically fraudulent manner. But I I would say, you know, to bring the conversation back around to where we started with philosophy and stoicism, you know, one possible solution, apart from the political and legislative solutions on the different restrictions that we have in different countries on these kind of things, um, to the extent that it comes down to the individual, like Stoicism and Greek philosophy in general developed as a kind of protective, again, or countermeasure against manipulation, political or, I mean, in a way, it wouldn't be ridiculous to say that Socratic philosophy developed as a defense against political rhetoric in some ways. That's why philosophers developed logic. That's why they study verbal fallacies. Um, And, you know, maybe learning philosophy in the right sort of way might help to protect people against AI and marketing and other forms of manipulation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolutely no question that people should be encouraged. We should be teaching logical reasoning in school. I don't know why we're not teaching philosophy of life in school. And these very important questions should be the first things we're teaching in school. We should start when they're five. So we have to teach people how to think and how to navigate through the world. But I note I don't think, or at least I've never encountered anyone that said we should incorporate Stoic philosophy into the law and force everybody to become Stoics, which we could, based on your coffee you know, analysis, uh-huh. it could be a good argument to do that. But I don't think the Stoics took that position. I think that's the right position. I think we encourage people. We teach them. We say, look, this is in yeah. your interest. We, we show them the way. But at the end of the day, if somebody wants to say, Mark, I don't care about Stoic philosophy. I'm a hedonist. I live for right now. I care about fame and fortune. Don't care about any of this external stuff or indifferent stuff. It's all about now. Okay, that's their philosophy of life. As long as they're not aggressing. That's the thing I think I get to insist on. You don't get to aggress. That's why I want that in the law. You're not frauding anybody. You're not coercing any. But if you're peaceful, you can be a peaceful jerk. You can peacefully destroy your own life. That's the nature of the fact that you own you. You own your life. And I'll help you in every way as I can as a brother. I'll send you to Don Robertson. He's got good advice. But if you choose not to go, at some point, Don, we've got to say freedom is an important value. And we have to let people make choices that are not in their long-term self-interest. Otherwise, we're all fighting and we're at each other's throats over in Mm -hmm. what areas because everybody's got different ideas about health and how many hours you should sleep and whether you should be a Christian or not and all kinds. We're in an endless struggle that we want to stop as members of the Live and Let Live movement. We want to swallow that bitter pill that hurts you and me because we want them to be Stoics, but we also staunchly defend their right to reject every aspect of Stoicism to their detriment. Mm-hmm. I think... I mean, one way I'd respond to this overall is to say that if we want to maximize the freedom of individuals in society, then, you know, whether it's 
simply in terms of encouraging them to do so through education, we need to maximize their baseline level of competence to protect themselves against verbal manipulation, sophistry, and it's rhetoric. Great, if we talk great. people about some of the common fallacies that the tabloid yes. newspapers yes. So exploit, then they just need to know, like basic research methods, basic logic, you know, these things could potentially, you know, like have resolved some of the the problems that clinicians and researchers have been complaining about. Back um, to the Stoics, modus ponens and modus tollens and the things the Stoics were teaching way back when in logic. We don't teach that stuff anymore. And again, and I say this in court all the yeah. time, Don, I say these are, I, I, you know, in my opinion, the major causes of crime that we could actually do something about is parenting. We got a big parenting problem. I say it in court all the time and the judges nod their heads because they know I'm right. Some things we can't fix through legislation. And this is one of those things. What you're talking about right now, we have to encourage people to be better parents and be better humans and start teaching your kids the things they need to navigate through the world so they can understand the fallacies of logic and reasoning and how to get through life. But, but we can't force them to do that. I, some people shouldn't have kids at all, right? But I don't want to force them into doing that. I want to encourage them. I want to model the right behavior. And then hopefully they'll follow. And I have enough confidence in our fellow humans because I think humans ultimately want to act in ways they perceive to be in their self-interest. We just need to show them what is in their self-interest by acting appropriate. Like Marcus says, stop talking about what the good man's like and be one. I'm living, live in, let live in stoicism mm-hmm. right now. And I challenge everybody listening to this show to do both. To do both. Well, that might be a good point to conclude by asking you, do you have, to kind of turn the tables a little bit, do you have a particular question that you would like to leave our listeners to mull over? I absolutely do. And I think it's a very important question because probably most of the people listening to your podcast are people like you and I who have discovered stoicism and they're in some level of self-education there, which means they understand the greatness of this philosophy and the importance of it for their own personal lives. What I would ask them is, how could we offload this particular philosophy and everything we've talked about into a political context? And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is what parts of Stoicism go into the legal world that we force on everybody, whether they like it or not, and what parts of Stoicism go into the moral world where we work as, as mightily as we can to try to persuade and model and convince people to act in certain ways. And, and my, my, suggestion to them to critique is that's exactly what the live and let live movement has turned into be they report if you care about justice right as one of the virtues in the broad sense of justice how do we treat other people to aggress against them has to violate that core virtue there is no reconciling aggressing against another human being in following the four virtues there are many other things that are outside of that that we should model and try our best And so I'd love for people to write to me and say, Mark, here's some aspect of live and let live that I don't think uh, offloads the stoic virtues or something we could do better. I'm happy to entertain all of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we went, we started with the idea of the moral principle. It was first be a good human. And Mm -hmm. when stoicism really took over and I thought more carefully, I said, "Why, why are we encouraging them to be good humans when we can encourage them to be excellent humans? And so we changed that. 
to really get mm-hmm. to inspire people to aspire to the highest and best values. And again, that's why Live and Let Live, in my opinion, is the only political sort of, I call it a practical political philosophy, modeling after the Stoics. It's a practical, I don't reach the question about why aggression is wrong. You may have natural law arguments there or religious arguments, or we don't Mm -hmm. reach that question. If you think aggression is wrong, welcome to the live and let live global peace movement. So that's my question. How could we better offload this great philosophy into a a practical political philosophy that could if followed, get us to peace and freedom globally, which we mm-hmm. need to do immediately if our races are the human. I don't think it overstates the case, Don, to say we're in real danger of destroying not just our yeah. species, maybe even all life on Earth. Like we have got to think differently. What we have been doing is not working. We need a new paradigm, a new worldview. Yeah. Everybody will check out liveandletlive.org and mm-hmm. and write to me if you think I got it wrong. If you think yeah. I got it right, volunteer, help, get involved. You'll meet some wonderful people from around the world. We have people uh-huh. in many different countries, all through Europe and different places in Canada and uh, Australia and around the world, and especially in the United States. So get involved, do something, at least make your best efforts to try to improve the world. Because when I look back at my life, Don, I want to say, what did I do? to mm-hmm. try to improve the world. At least I left the blueprint on, on, on a practical political philosophy that could get us there uh-huh. if followed. And you came on my podcast. And I came on your podcast. <laughs> what better than that? And th- by the way, thank you. So it's been such a wonderful enjoy. I wish we had more time. I'd uh-huh. love to explore all these issues with you. And I, I appreciate your questioning and what you do in your life in terms of being a good stoic and trying to improve humanity by all of the, I can't imagine the time you've put in to helping promote this wonderful philosophy. Thank you so much. I haven't covered all your books, but I'm looking forward to doing every single last one of them. And I'm sure I'll have some questions, maybe even some friendly critique Uh for you as well. We'll see. Thank you, brother, for what you do to help improve the world. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute joy. Like I I like a good discussion. And uh, I feel like we kind of got into some interesting questions as well along the way. We didn't just skim the surface. We kind of like, you know, had a, a proper discussion like, that went beneath the surface, I think. Um, so thank you for joining us today. And I want to thank everybody who tuned in for listening. And please comment uh, on the episode responding to Mark's questions. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And uh, I look forward to uh, speaking to you about this uh, again and continuing the discussion in the future, Mark. So it's a goodbye from the both of us. Bye, everyone. Peace.